Welcome back to the Sober Bartender Podcast. I'm your host, Brandy Kelly. Today, I cannot wait for you to hear what I have recorded. Today, my guest is Sarani. She is my friend. She's my mentor. She's my sponsor. There are a lot of different ways to recover. But for me personally, my journey has brought me to the rooms of AA, and I cannot do this alone. I cannot stay sober on my own. I cannot do life on my own. I need others. I need help. And I need people that have been there and done that, that can walk with me through, you know, the ins and outs and the ups and downs. So today I'm sharing with you a beautiful talk with my sponsor, and I hope you love it. All right. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have my friend, mentor, and sponsor, Sarani, on the show. Welcome, Sarani. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm so excited. You have no idea. Sarani is, she's a sober bartender as well. And one of the reasons that when she first, you know, shared parts of her story, I like instantly felt drawn to her because not a lot of people get being sober and still continuing to be a bartender. So that was like one of the first things that really drew me to her. And so she's going to share some of her story, what it was like, what it's like now and what it's like being a bartender. Yeah. Take it away. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I mean, the highlights for me are, you know, I started drinking around five was drinking regularly by 13, was using drugs by 14. And, you know, it was for me, it was a medicine, right? Like I didn't like the way I felt. And when I used or drank, like I didn't feel the way I didn't want to feel anymore. So um, when I started working in restaurants, uh, bartender became an opportunity for me. And when I moved into it, I was already drinking pretty heavily and struggling with it. And I found that like, bartending it was a lot easier to drink people like to buy bartenders drinks while they're bartending and like it it took a little bit of the edge off for me so I like really dug into it because it helped feed my problem and like that's kind of a curse right but it's also kind of a blessing because it pushed me far enough into my alcoholism that I had to get sober and once I did uh you know I realized that the that the alcohol wasn't the only part of bartending I loved, right? Like I had also gained all these skills and like once I had a little bit of sobriety under my belt, those skills are still valuable, right? Like I could be an awesome bartender, I could get along with my my uh customers, I could, you know, give really good recommendations because I have a wicked drinking history <laughs> and uh they appreciate it, right? Like I enjoy the nuances now, which is really cool. So And we definitely have the, like the gift of multitasking people don't realize, like I've really discounted myself, but like multitask, like being able to manage, like manage well, so many tasks at the same time. And like, Mm -hmm. I did that. I don't want to say nearly unconscious, but like being bartenders that drank on the job, like, you know, I I could do all those things with my eyes closed. Absolutely. (laughs) And like, think about it now, like what, what I like it's muscle memory, right? Like I feel like when you make those same motions over and over again, you learn how to do it without thinking. So now that I'm not drinking, it's like twice as fast and I'm like twice as good at it. And in my mind, I'm not, but like everyone else is like, why are you moving so quickly? Yes. <laughs> I'm not drinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. And um, 
I did want to ask, like, because I forget quite a bit because things are so good now. Yeah. What was it like going back to work when you were newly sober? Okay. So when I, when I, so what I did when I got newly sober is I took like a three month break from bartending and I served. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I like, I was really afraid, but I figured out after like a month of it that like alcohol, like being around alcohol was no longer like the problem. Like when I was at work, I'm in work mode. And like, for some reason, I didn't want to drink when I was working. But if you left me alone in that room while I was doing nothing, I had an instant urge. Or if you put me in a staff meeting for like 30 minutes, I had the instant urge because people, places like they drive me nuts. But work isn't one of them. If that makes sense. It, It does. And okay. I still, I still struggle to like find, I, I, I can't quite go back in my memory to what it was like mm-hmm. after detox, like sure. checking out on a Friday and going back to work on a Monday. Yeah. I think like for me, the hardest part was what to do after the shift, right? Like, cause I was so used to like working and like, even like I drank through my work, but it was more controlled. Right. Cause I'm working and then like you get done and you get plastered. Um, you know, like, it's just like all of a sudden, like, oh, all bets are off. I'm off the clock. Sit down with the customers. Have a great time. Um, but, like, going through the shift itself, like, after getting sober wasn't so hard. It was the minute I got done, right? And for me, like, the minute I got done, I had to go to a meeting. Like, and that was okay. my answer. So. So I, I know we've talked about this, but a lot of people are even have, like, anxiety about the grocery store. Like I, if I had that, I wasn't even willing to acknowledge it. Like in my mind, I was like, I'm getting out of detox. I still have to go to work. So Mm -hmm. I've got to just make this work. Like alcohol and me have to exist, but I can't put that into my body because it's all over for me after that. But uh, can you address like the fear of the grocery store and like. Sure. I massively had that fear. Mm-hmm. Like I remember the first time after I got out of treatment that I went to the grocery store, I brought someone with me second time, same thing, third time, same thing. I think it took like a few months for me to be able to go by myself because my automatic place I go first is to the liquor area. Um, then I just started avoiding aisles and going the long way around. Um, it took time for me, um, took time and work and like, you know, the program of like, A-A-N-A-H-A-C-A, it doesn't matter. Those steps, like, are what changed it for me. And it, like, helped me see that, the like, it was my brain that was causing the problem. It wasn't the fact that alcohol was in the vicinity there. Because this is on my free time and not at work. And for some reason, they're two different things for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't, I had lost the barrier between, like, between being off work and on work. Like, it didn't. It didn't matter even when I was at a place where it was absolutely forbidden. That just meant I absolutely couldn't get caught. Sure. So like even, um, you know, I moved to Washington and I relapsed and it was like five months and there was no drinking allowed whatsoever at the places that I worked in Washington. But I still like would do inventory and pour some into a cup as I'm reaching into a cooler because the cameras can't see me. And we were wearing masks because it was the pandemic. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I just had all these, you know, the the way alcoholism works, like you just you rationalize and you justify all these little things. And then you set up these systems to make it easier for you to drink. Yep. 
it's funny. I like, I always think about there was a point in like where I was in between bars and I was like working in this restaurant as a server. Right. Um, and I go into work and I need a drink. So what I, I started doing was buying like little flight bottles mm-hmm. and like lining my pockets with them, but it got too expensive. So I bought this like tiny funnel on Amazon and I'd like refill the bottles at home, screw them off, put them in my pockets and walk and like go to work and be like, you know, these eight are going to keep me good for the next six hours. And, a lot of times it wouldn't. So like I'd have to steal from the restaurant or walk over to the liquor store down the street during a smoke break, you know, Mm -hmm. that's what like, that's my rationalization. Like I can manage this myself and like, I'm going to come up with a system because I'm a systematic person. So here's my system. This is how I'm going to control costs. This is how I'm going to control usage. Brilliant. Like (laughs) none of it actually worked in the long run. Like, but in my mind, it was better than what I would have done otherwise. Yeah. And I, yeah, I get Mm -hmm. it though. Like that's, that's the, the thing about alcoholism is that that makes sense to me. Um, when I was in California and living on my mom's couch, I worked, um, I worked two nights a week and mind you, I was 31 at this point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you, mom. Um, I worked two nights at a nightclub and I had to cocktail waitress because they didn't have any openings behind the bar. So Mm -hmm. I was like, I would order an extra shot because I could carry it out onto the floor and I could do it in the hallway on my way out onto the patio. But then that (laughs) got so expensive because I wasn't making any money because I would drink it before I left. So I started getting the little uh, mini flight bottles at the liquor store down the street. Mm -hmm. But then like I started getting sloppy with it and they were like finding the empties and like they could see them in my apron. And like it was just it was. Yeah but I had my little system and that was what it took. Yeah. And that's what it took just from day to day. Like it made so much sense to just, I lived off of liquor then though. Yeah. Yeah. And it's wild what we'll do to hide it too. Right. Like I, I I do remember working at, as a bartender in Seattle at like a restaurant, it's like three restaurants connected. Right. Mm -hmm. And I get out of work and, you know, I'd sit like, it, I didn't even know I was trying to control like other people's perception of my drinking, but like I would sit and I'd be like, okay, I'm done. I'll have a, a fernet and I'll have a beer. Right. And so like, I'd hang out at the bar and be like, I need to go smoke. And I'd go outside and I'd rip shots off of a bottle that I kept out there and then come back in and be like, no, this is all I'm having guys. Sorry. Cause like, and, and like, I didn't comprehend that I was trying to p- control the perception and the narrative, but that's what I was doing. That's what my brain was doing without me having any like knowledge of it. It's, it's crazy what our brains can do. And once again, I, I mean, I totally identify. I didn't necessarily do that, but it was just, I would hang out. Like I hung out at the place that I worked or, you know, I mm-hmm. had in Vegas, I had several places where I would go after work and it's like, I didn't drink too crazy. I would have like a drink and a shot and I would fernet about it all day, every day, by the way, <laughs> I like, lived on fernet for like two years. Yeah, living on Fernets or Ferraris. I don't know if you've ever had one of those. I have not. I have not. Uh, Fernet and Campari put together. Oh, yeah. No, we didn't have Campari. (laughs) I didn't drink when I was out in public the way I drank at home. Mm -hmm. So, like, at home there was just, you know, all, like, the wheels came off. Whereas when I was out, it was more so, like, social. And I didn't, like, people, when I did, like, start reaching out like a year maybe a year and a half before I got sober people would say to me all the time like you don't you don't seem like you have a problem 
but it's like they never saw me sober. Yeah. Like sober me was like uncontrollably like shaking and in DTs and anxious yeah. and and antisocial and couldn't hold a conversation and I can a hundred percent identify with that because like I know before my first time going to treatment, which like God bless treatment, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um. I was like incredibly out of control. Like if I wasn't drinking, I was shaking. When I tried getting sober, I was having seizures. And I remember going into treatment and coming back out and my roommates being like, oh, we had no idea you had an alcohol problem. Yeah. And it's like, we live together, right? Like I'm so good at putting on this false narrative that like you can't even tell that like I'm killing myself. Mm. Like it's powerful, but... It is powerful. And what's crazy is now, like years away from the drink, mm-hmm. those things we still have to watch out for because we're not doing it with alcohol, but we still try to hide things, bury things, because th- those are the things that like those are our our um, what's the word I'm looking for? Coping mechanisms. They're like our coping. Those are like our fail safes. Like that's what we automatically revert back to. And so yep. if we don't stay active and we don't stay vigilant and we don't stay honest, like that's still what we go back to, but emotionally instead of just alcohol. Well, hundred percent, because like, like I said, alcohol was my medicine, right? Yeah. Um, so like, I don't like the way I feel. So I'm going to find something that's going to change the way I feel. It was alcohol. It was drugs. Now it can be food. Food changes how I feel. Adrenaline changes how I feel like, um, you know, uh, pain changes how I feel. Love changes how I feel. Like I find other things to replace it because like, I don't like how I feel in general. And if I stop working the program that also fixes the way I feel, then I find something else to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it's so quick and I don't even notice it until I'm so deep in it. And that's why it's great to have like, you know, I have a sponsor who calls me out on it. And I have like women I work with like you where I get to watch you going through the same thing. And it's like, oh, shit, I'm doing that, too. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Yes, I do, because I learned that, too. Like, I can talk to you and see what comes up. But then when I talk to women that I work with, I'm like, oh, I'm so right there just with something else. And it's beautiful because it just keeps us on this path of growing and like learning and unraveling and unbecoming what we worked so hard to become. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like the ultimate definition of humility, right? Like Mm -hmm. a lot of times people think humility means to be less than or to be small, but like humility to me means being right-sized, right? Like not thinking I'm bigger or more powerful than I am and also not putting myself down in the hole, right? Uh, and walking this program or like helping other people and seeing them in the same place as you keeps you right-sized, right? We're not better than anyone. We're not less than anyone. We're like walking that same path. And that other person is that reminder, if that makes sense. It makes so much sense. (laughs) It makes all the sense because in my drinking, I thought that I was so much better and so much, you know, I I was like this grandiose personality, but then also I had so much self-loathing and like, you know, no self-worth and no self-respect and no boundaries. And I was never just walking the walk. Like I was never just on the path. And so that like surrender and that humility, it, like you said, like keeps me right sized. Like it keeps yeah. me just open to like, who can I help? How can I help? And it's not 
so that I can be better than or because I'm less than. It's just because yeah. I have experience that can benefit others. Like I've been giving the gift of this new life. Yeah. And number one, I can't help but want to share that with anyone that has any interest in listening to or receiving it. And also like that's my duty and obligation. Like in order to keep this life, I need to continue to share it. Yeah, it's funny when you're talking about that, I was I was thinking of like, you know, that ego that you're talking about, like I, I'm the same way, right? Like when I was drinking, I, I had this massive ego and I thought I was better than so many people or that's what I like projected out to the world. But inside I was so miserable and I hated myself and I hated everything about me. So there's like this big gap between what the world sees and what I am like to myself. And I think that like getting sober kind of brought them towards the middle. Right. So that they mm -hmm. became like, I'm not as high, but like also my perception is not as low and like, it's so valuable. And like you just mentioned as well, like you can talk to anybody, right? Like, it doesn't matter whether you, you're an alcoholic or an addict, like any person, anywhere, any problem, like one of the coolest things about getting sober is the way I get to problem solve today is applicable to anybody I talk to. And like that comes in handy at work a lot. You know, those people at the end of the night at the bar going through stuff like I get to use like these simple tools that were given to me and help other people. And it helps everybody. It doesn't matter what your issue is. Yep. That's yep. awesome. It's amazing. That's my big thing is like, yes, our steps, like we, it, our steps apply to alcohol, but powerless over alcohol, we've talked about, you can put in there people, places, things, ideas, institutions, like all of the, all of these things that come up, like there's a solution. I don't want to say I wish more people had the same like desperation or like hope yeah. to like surrender to you know, a 12-step way of life, but the possibility for growth for, for everyone, not just addicts and alcoholics, is there. Unfortunately, yeah. it a lot of times takes hopelessness, pain to motivate us to change. Well, absolutely. I mean, like, sometimes I like to replace, like, in the 12 steps, the word, uh, like, alcohol with life. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm powerless over life and my life is unmanageable. Right. Like these are the steps to fix how we're powerless over life. Like I love that. That's what it is. Like I'm powerless over everything except for myself. But the good news is <laughs> there's, a, there's a solution. There's a solution. Everybody can use it. Yeah, I know. It's like uh, I wish I could take it and put it into a pill and just prescribe it to people you know what I mean like mm -hmm. if you knew what I have like you would want it to doesn't sound fun to you but like it's so much better than what it was like before like I was just talking to a friend who had quit drinking but you know didn't feel like she needed meetings or didn't feel like she needed a program and you know just felt like she needed a break and I've been there and I get it and she knows enough about the program to make her own decision right but it just, I, I get so interested because the perception of what recovery is and like what work it takes, like it can, it can seem like overwhelming or off-putting to people that aren't there. Like they, they're not willing to give themselves over to that, but they don't, but they do see the benefit. Like they see the night and day and the people that they love that, that have yeah, I mean, well, like, I mean, I feel like for most people, like, 
there has to be no option left, right? Yeah. yeah. To try something different, we have to be left without options. And if you feel like you still have some, you got to use them before you can get there. And like, and it's tough, right? You hear people who like get sober once and never drink again. And you hear people who go to treatment like 25 times and still like don't get sober, right? It's, it's just a matter of like feeling like you're out of options. I'm like, I feel very blessed that like my bottom was like where it was, right? Because that bottom isn't like set for everybody. Everyone's is different, right? It's just the point at which you stop digging. And like, I stopped digging here and somebody might dig a little farther, but hopefully eventually they stop as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I say like it, it takes what it takes, but Mm -hmm. like what made the bottom that made me go to detox and like made me go to treatment was totally different than like the bottom that I reached after going out because my life got better. Like I did, I couldn't understand. Like when I was in detox, and I had never been to a detox or, you know, talked to anybody who had been to one. Um, you know, hearing people's experiences where they're like, oh, it's my fifth time here. It's my sixth time here. And I'm like, that's fucking stupid. Like, what do you mean you had to come back? Because I'm cocky, right? And also fearful at the same time. Yeah. So um, I just couldn't get why. Why would you go into treatment if you were just going to drink again? Like, that's how uneducated I was about about alcoholism and about my disease and I I had learned the hard way as I do with most things yeah well like you gotta also remember like the alcohol is trying to keep you from learning that lesson right like there's a whole chemical component to all of this right and like once we're in it like our brain like somebody who doesn't drink probably would have understood why but like you can't because alcohol doesn't want you to yeah it's kind of weird but it's like clinically proven that alcohol does what it can to keep you believing you need it. Yeah. So it's just, it's interesting. Like I got treatment and didn't necessarily want recovery. <laughs> that's, that's a big thing that I hear from people that kind of want to break or they want to take some time off, but they don't, they don't want recovery. And they, I'm like, what don't you want? Like, what <laughs> don't you want about like your, your eyes opening and like, you know, the sun shining and I don't know, like, yeah, I get it. But like you said, I just wish that I could just put it in a pill, put it in a pill, like package it in a way that people just could, could see the benefit of, of surrender. Like, it's not a bad thing. You're surrendering the the pain and the frustration and the control and the, the misery. But I feel like sometimes I feel like, though, like it's only as valuable as it is because of what we go through to get it. Right. So like if everybody wanted it, it wouldn't be as valuable. You have to really like fight to get it. And that's what we did. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it was a fight for you. I remember (laughs) you Mm -hmm. fought fought your way through. And that's why it's so valuable to you now. So. Yep, it was almost two years ago, like right around um, this time, because my birthday's coming up. Mm-hmm. It was really difficult, and when I first got sober, like right away, I found I found Sarani, and it was all God's grace because she did not normally go to the club that I went to every day, and I was not willing to like branch out and try other places. 
but she had been up at my club one day. Like you were at my club, you spoke, and I was like, oh, I would like to talk to her, but she seems very intimidating. And like, I would have <laughs> to actually put forth work. And my first sponsor was my friend. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of like structure and there wasn't. And um, I saw Sarani and I think that it was before, it was before I went on a trip to Vegas. Mm-hmm. And I went on a trip to Vegas with like, 17 days sober thinking I got this because I had had a year sober almost a year sober before and I drank and I hated it and I was that person times 10 once again and so when I went got back to Washington and I got back in a meeting and I told on myself and then thank goodness God brought Sarani right back into that meeting and that was when I like ran up and was like I want it let's do it whatever it is like how many days did you have? I just don't know. I don't know. I think, I, I think it was short. I think it was like three or four. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That was definitely a blessing. Like I don't go to that very often and I'm, I'm glad I was because um, it's been an honor working with you and being able to take you through it. And you were probably the most desperate person I've ever worked with, which is awesome. I was amazing. The most, well, that's how I became so willing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you were, you were, you needed a change. So we got you right through it. And like, when we talk about it takes what it takes, like the fact that, you know, there was so much shame in my relapse and like in leaving my program in Las Vegas 10 days before one year Mm -hmm. and like moving up to Washington and starting a relationship and knowing that it's toxic and all these things, like all these things were exactly what it took for me to get desperate. Yeah. Like all of those things. And that's just so true in in God's world. Like we yeah. get that free will and at every turn there's the opportunity to turn to him or to turn towards our will and keep barreling towards the chaos. Yeah. And like, and that's the crazy great design. Like, you know, a lot of people, like, I, I think it's interesting. I hear a lot of pushback on the whole God thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, I get that. For me, like I grew up super religious, um, loved God, great relationship until I got a little bit older, right? And realized like I'm super, super gay. <laughs> and yeah. God doesn't like gay people according to the church I grew up in, so I had to make a choice, right? Yep. And when I got sober, this whole God thing came up again and I was super resentful about it. I didn't like that I was required to worship someone who didn't like me. And I heard it multiple times that like it doesn't have to be the same God. God can be anything you want. And it took so long for me to comprehend that like the, like for me, at least the God of my childhood was maybe the God that I have now, but the church was telling me what my God was saying versus me listening directly to my higher power to my God. Mm -hmm. So, um, a lot of people get frustrated with the idea that like God has this great plan, but like what you were talking about, like, God gives us choices. And if we say no, he says, okay, right? And then we suffer and we suffer and we suffer until we decide. It's not a punishment. No. It's just our choices. It's our choice. Every choice has a consequence, right? Either a good or a bad consequence. And Mm -hmm. like, we say no, we suffer. And it's not like a punishment on us. It's a choice we made. And if we say yes, then we gain from it. And it's not a punishment or it's not a gift. Right. It's a consequence as well. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's also a positive consequence. 
to the choice yep. we made. So I totally agree. And I pre I'm glad that you brought that up because like I I talk about God freely. <laughs> yeah. And I talk about God with religious people. And I don't necessarily consider myself religious. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't ever feel the need to like differentiate my God between theirs. Like I don't need to say I don't need to say, oh, but like, I don't know. I don't know Jesus like, you know, Jesus. I just I'm like, I bet my God loves me just like your God. You know, it's like God yeah. is God to me. So whatever you believe, whatever you believe is OK with me. And um, I just know that there is a power greater than myself. Like, I feel this loving energy that like surges through me. Like, I know for a fact that the things that have come about in my life are not things that I could ever make happen. Mm -hmm. Like on my own accord, I cannot continue to live without like, without taking a drink or without causing chaos or without, you know, th there are these things that happen by turning my will and my life over every day. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the point I was trying to get to there. It's just, you don't have to know what it is. You just have to know it's not you. Well, absolutely. Like, uh, it's funny because, like, a lot of times we talk about, like, especially in a church, they'll talk about the God of our comprehension, right? Which the idea of comprehension means, it means that we cannot comprehend all of it. You would just say God otherwise. So if my brain can't comprehend all of God, it means yours can't either. We could all be seeing different pieces of one great thing, right? All these religions might be other people like I like to think of the Bible as like it's like 40 dudes comprehensions of God sure each, you know what I mean like mm -hmm. um and like each religion it's their comprehension but like we can't get it all our brains are not powerful to not powerful enough we just gotta believe it's bigger than us and we can't destroy it and like we all seem to so let's just you know allow each other the room to believe what we believe yeah because if it helps it helps and that was one of the big things um, my first time around. My first time mm -hmm. in the program is um, I didn't really investigate or rework my understanding of what a higher power meant to me. So that right. childhood God, like I grew up Mormon. Right. Um, until I was about nine. But mm -hmm. I did have just this set idea that, you know, that Jesus wants me for a sunbeam to shine for him each day. Like that's ingrained in my head. We had a little dance in our chair. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I just, I knew that you were good or you were bad. And I knew I wasn't good. And whatever told me that in my head, I ran with it. Mm -hmm. So um, I always felt like there was a God and that he was capable of loving and embracing and forgiving everyone except for me. Right. Because he, if he knew everything that I did, there's no way I was good enough for for his love or salvation or so anyway the this time around I just let go of everything I let go of like any barriers that I had like I let go of an idea I went I don't know like I just I I don't know if that's right I don't I don't care like whatever it is like just here I am yeah and that has grown into like the most beautiful expansive relationship that I've ever experienced so isn't that nice yeah like and like I mean for me it's like constantly evolving mm -hmm. I love that you mentioned personal God right because that's like that's how I feel now right like I've got a I've got a piece of God that's only mine 
and like looks out for only me and works on only my problems, but it's a piece of a larger thing. Right. Um, and like, I don't need to necessarily understand it as long as I know it's there. Right. And, and like faith to me is like the fact that I'm going to step off this like cliff and believe that something is going to catch me on the other side, that there will be a step. And when I am willing to like take my reservations and throw them out and have that faith, great things come. But if I bring those reservations with me, that's when the struggle begins. Right. Like, because it's, um, we have to trust. Right. And if, if I can't fully trust, like I don't reap the reward or the benefits from like having faith. Cause it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And the tough thing is, is we have to like, we have to grow into that faith and that just comes through time and time takes time and taking these steps and that takes time. Yep. And like the long, the more we do this, the more we walk it every day, the less that faith becomes conditional. Right. Like it's no longer like I'm in a bad, like cause when I first got sober, all of my faith only happened when things were bad. Right. Like it was conditional. Things are awful in my life. God, I have faith. You can fix it. I'm going to put everything into this and then things would get better. Right. And then when it was good, I would lay off that faith because I've got this. Right. Yeah. So like the more we walk this, the more we continue in faith. Cause like, all the good stuff we got is because of the faith we had. Yes. So keep that faith. Like it can, it'll exponentially grow. And that's like a hard thing to do. Cause like I'm human, right? Like I fall right back into the same patterns all the time. And the only thing I can hope for is that like the time between full faith moments gets shorter. Yeah. 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 I like that. Yeah. So there's also <clears throat> there's also the gratitude. Like gratitude is up there with uh like when I was newly sober, Sarani had me you had me do a ten item gratitude list every morning. And now I pass that on to like women that I'm working with. Like I thought, okay, I just this is to help me have a positive outlook. Like this is to help me, you know, but it also that was also part of my faith was just like, you know recognizing that there were things that were happening in my life as I got farther away from the alcohol Mm -hmm. and like got more into the steps. Like these things are happening in my life and like, I don't have control over them. They're just happening. Yeah. Like that, that really led me to the faith without conditions. Like just, yeah. Yeah. Gratitudes are such a fun thing because like, you know, when we get sober, we're so low on dopamine that we can't help but focus on everything negative, right? Like our, like drugs and alcohol cause dopamine surges in your brain, which trains your brain to make less dopamine. So it takes a while, right? So I'm naturally conditioned now to always see things negatively. Um, and when I only see things negatively, I have a negative attitude. So like taking time to just write 10 things that are good. Like, even if it's like, I saw a butterfly or like the sun rose today, like it helps train us to like, look for the positive. And even if we only look for the positive in that moment, that little bit of positive brightens our day some. It's a mustard seed of positivity that can exactly. grow. 
Exactly. And like the more we do it, the better our days seem to be. The, the, not, no true explanation other than the idea that we accepted some warmth at some point in the day and it changed the outcome for the rest of it. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty fucking cool. So yeah. I still love gratitudes. And then like what's great is like for us, like that, that what I had you do, right? Like so I had you do 10 gratitudes in the morning and then end your day with your five accomplishments, right? Yep. Five things you did for your recovery. Um, you did those and you got familiar with doing those. And then when we worked through the steps, we replaced those with things that also bring you gratitude and show you what you've accomplished. And it grew and, and you grew from it, right? Yeah. And continue to grow because it's on yeah. a much deeper level because you're digging for these answers and you're, you know, doing a personal inventory and looking at, at yourself and at your actions and at your thoughts and your feelings and yeah, it's, it's crazy. And like, for me, like that meditation in the morning, like that we replaced the gratitude list with, that was a hard thing for me personally. Um, I was still at the point that I got to step 11, I was still struggling to consolidate my old ideas of what my higher power was and my new ideas of what my higher power was, not realizing they could be the same thing. So when you like, Believing in God wasn't hard, but asking me to listen to what God said was really complicated because the last time I listened to what God was saying was when a pastor told me that my homosexuality is a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So it was really hard for me to get into it, but um, the pain got great enough, right? Like, and that's like my, that's how it works with me. Like when the pain is great enough, I surrender and I do what I'm supposed to do. And when I, like, I got given like a 30 day challenge. And when I did that 30 day challenge, my life and my energy, like just shifted. Mm -hmm. Um, I got calmer and like, as, as I did it, it got easier for me to just like, listen and like realize that like, I'm not necessarily listening for a voice in my head. I'm listening for the thoughts that are being given to me. And like, um, in between times of presence, right? Like, cause they come in and out and mm -hmm. journaling it also brought another layer to it where like now, like as I'm writing these words, it's like God is working through me in a weird way. So, um, it was a fight for me. Whereas for you, 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 you latched right on, but I started by reading daily reflections every morning and then I would mm -hmm. kind of write how I identified with whatever the daily reflection was. Mm -hmm. And then you prompted me to kind of dig deeper and apply it more so to like what I was encountering in my life. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, at two months sober, I separated from my yeah. then husband. So <laughs> the steps, the time, the time that I was taking those steps was such a powerful time because I was in a life transition, not just with re-entering recovery but also with ending this thing that was definitely not good for me yeah and learning how to like walk forward and do things in a loving way like learning how to have boundaries how to you know approach things with love patience tolerance and also how to not be a doormat because I mm -hmm. thought that you know I felt so guilty over the things that I had done that I felt like I had to just be you know I had to just take what whatever was given my way because I still felt like I deserved that. And you kind of helped me learn that, like, no, I don't do harm, but I also don't have to take shit. Absolutely. It was um, 
honestly, you had such an interesting first year of sobriety, um, but you walked it gracefully. I think you, I feel like you were almost unaware of, of the actions that were being taken against you. And it wasn't until like, I was like, hey, you can say no. Like, hey, you don't have to do that, that you started like recognizing it, right? And the step work did coincide for you yeah. with exactly what you were going through. Like all those coping skills and like the grace that you handled that situation with were directly reflected with where you were in your step work. And it was so cool. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, I can't imagine what it would have been like had I not had a program, but yeah. What's so interesting is after you, the next woman I got through the steps was going through the exact same situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, um, I, I don't know what you're doing here, God, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm here for it, right? Yeah. Like, how you're like, women- oh, oddly <laughs> enough, I've actually already experienced this with yep. someone. Or with a sponsee. And so like, you know, it's probably, you know, the way God works is, I get trained for situations and they keep getting handed to me and I keep getting the chance to use the skills I've been given. Mm-hmm. So I'm thankful for the fact that we walked through that together because it helps other women. Like your experience is constantly helping other women. And that's so fucking cool. It really is. Yeah. Cause when, you know, now when I go through something like there's that constant reminder of like, Someday this is going to be an asset to someone else. Yeah. You know, and it's it doesn't make it better. And it's not like, you know, I don't want to just paint everything with silver linings, rose colored glasses and just like paint rainbows on everything. But it's like every single thing that has come my way that has felt like the end of the world or has felt too heavy to carry. I have completely survived. And now, like you said, with turning those things over to my higher power. Like I can not only handle them, I can walk through them gracefully because I'm not carrying the burden by myself anymore. Exactly. And then, and then I have the, you know, the knowledge and the reassurance that I'm going to encounter someone that is going to really benefit from this experience. And not just because I read about it or heard about it, but because I walked it. Yeah. And what's cool is like, uh, the great thing about this fellowship is it like in sponsorship in the first place is that like we build lineages, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, I'm your sponsor. I have a sponsor. My sponsor is a sponsor. And so like somewhere in this lineage, this like, t- like this line of women, there is not a single situation that hasn't been dealt with. So like, let's say I run into a, like working with someone, something that I've never dealt with. I can ask any of you for support and you can give it to me and you can also give it to my sponsee. Right. Cause like, mm-hmm. We're a people helping people fellowship. Yep. Like we're all here to help. And like, um, it means there's never something that no one knows how to deal with. Right. And we get to watch each other walk through it and we get to help each other walk through it. And that's, you know, that's a family. It is. Yeah. It's a family in a way. A lot of people don't get to experience family. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, completely transparent mm-hmm. and like the only goal is to help each other like there's no ulterior motives we stand nothing to gain except to help each other exactly it's based on a shared experience right like we've all been to the same place and we're all trying to go to the same place so 
Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of love there, a lot of love because we can understand one another in a way that like, like, I guess, I don't want to say real families, but, um, other families can't, right? Like my, my personal family, love them to death. Right. But they can't understand what I've gone through. Not like you guys can. Not on, yeah, the level of someone who's also walked it and walked out of it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible. And I'm, I'm excited that I get to sit down and like talk about it with you. I didn't know where our talk was going to go, but I'm not surprised that it went to higher power and faith. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm part of the God squad. (laughs) Yeah. Because this is the stuff we just kind of talk about. We just get on these tyrants of like, once again, gratitude for like just how amazing our lives are now. Yeah. Like even I know, and it's so cliche to say, but like the lowest low is still better than the highest high when I was using. Because I just wasn't, even when I was happy, I wasn't really happy. Right. I didn't yeah. feel fulfilled. No. I didn't feel like presence and like presence is like the biggest gift right like because I know now that when I am in fear I am thinking of the future and when I'm in pain I'm focused on the past right like and this program gave me the opportunity to sit right here in this moment which is what rockets us to the fourth dimension as it says in the big book so yeah yep And that's one of the most powerful things. Like that's one of my favorite tools is like when I start feeling any of those things to just focus on my breath and remember that I'm just a person sitting in a chair and I'm just existing. Like I'm not fixing, I'm not solving, I'm not worrying. Like if I'm just breathing, that's enough. And like that, you know, like, But like that right there, that ability to stay present, that is the biggest skill in being a sober bartender now. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know why I just thought about that. I'm like, oh, wait, because like when I'm in the weeds, when I'm getting my butt kicked, instead of spiraling out in my head, I'm staying present and just I just keep moving. Right. Yep. And so then my attitude stays great. Like my customers say they're, they're not blind. Like. They see it's busy, but in my head, I'm like, oh my God, they don't think I'm working hard enough, you know, (laughs) (laughs) unless I'm present and uh, it's just like a great benefit to them and myself. Yep. And that's just one of those muscles that gets, it gets more and more natural the more we strengthen it. Absolutely. You're killing the game. (laughs) (laughs) We both are. It's so funny now, like um, at the restaurant I bartend at, they do tastings every Thursday and like my management still is just completely perplexed by the fact that I'm sober, right? So they're like, oh, we'll pour these wines and you can smell them. And I'm like, I'm not going to smell them. Like you just opened a $140 bottle of wine so that I can smell it. Like I'm, I'm good, right? So, <laughs> but like, I don't have to smell it today and I don't have to taste it today. I can sit through that and be totally fine. Yeah. It's wild. Being a sober bartender is like such a benefit. It is. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of days where I don't want to be a sober bartender anymore. You know, yeah. I have, like I, I've gone through and it's been years, like years and years of the back and forth. And like, I feel pretty good about embracing it now is it's not the job is not the problem. The alcohol isn't the problem unless I put it in my body. 
Um, but, you know, I'm glad that other people can drink with impunity. I'm glad that people can, you know, it, it breaks my heart to see people who are drinking because they need to drink or because they're sick. But just the fact that that drinking exists and people partake no longer offends me. Whereas at first I was very, very jealous. I felt like it wasn't fair that I couldn't drink. I mean, I could, but I couldn't drink without ruining my life. Right. And I don't feel that way. I know that I have the choice and that the choice that I make is much, much better and very much worth it. Like there's nothing I'm missing out on. Absolutely. I know that feeling. Like uh, I remember right when I first got sober, I was living in a sober living and I remember commercials coming on and getting pissed off at beer commercials, like changing the channel and then like wanting to contact Comcast about how many (laughs) beer commercials they had, you know, I'm like, it's changed like, and it isn't like just time, right? It's spiritual fitness. Yeah. Like we've been talking about. So like, as long as I stay spiritually fit, like, I'm going to be fine. But the minute I lay off or take my foot off the gr- the gas, like all, like I will walk backwards in my steps mm-hmm. and that'll lead me right back to believing like I'm powerful enough to handle a drink, which I'm not. Every time I do, I break out in handcuffs. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I always say, what's the point in one anyway? Yeah. Because my alcoholic mind was a drink to blackout. Yeah. But yeah, like being spiritually fit, like makes that whole live and let live possible. Yep. Whereas like, I don't feel that way when I'm not spiritually fit. Like I'm not good with you doing you. And I have an idea about how you should be living and how you should be acting. And so once I'm right in myself and with, with where I'm at and what I'm doing, I'm okay with you. You know, as long as you're not hurting yourself or others, or at least not hurting others. Yeah. And like, I mean, I'll like, you know how it is here in Washington. Like if I let someone get super intoxicated and they walk out the door and they get in a car and they kill somebody, it's on me. Right. Texas. Yeah. So like, um, I'm glad that I have like the ability to see what's happening around me today so I can cut people off and prevent that. Right. Yes. I'm not going to jail, but I also don't want to like let someone get so far off that like they do hurt someone else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I work, you work more in a restaurant setting and I'm more in like a a dive or like a local bar setting. But over the years, there's been so many customers that have been sober curious, you know, and I feel like we're a safe place because it's like a non-judgmental person. Like clearly it's okay if you drink because I'm the bartender, I'm serving you. But then it's like, they can come and they can ask those questions and, you know, kind of get, a little glimpse, a dip, you know, dip in their toe and hopefully getting a mustard seed of. Yeah. It's not even just at work. Right. It's like in life in general. Like I personally, like I'm, I'm very honest and open about my sobriety. I, I post it on my like Facebook, like, you know, I'll talk about it with anyone who wants to, and people will reach out. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, because you're making yourself available and like, that's, a beautiful part of the program is like we're supposed to stay open and we're supposed to help others where we feel comfortable. So the more open I make myself, the more likely I am to have someone reach out. Right. Because like, I can't, I can't like like, Oh, you have a problem. Let me take you where you need to go. Like I need to hear you say like, Hey, I need help. Oh yeah. Help you. A lot of people ask me to judge their drinking 
Hmm. I'm some kind of like deciding factor on whether or not you're an alcoholic. And I'm like, that's not how it works. Like there's no judge, jury, and executioner. Like if you want to take a real look at your drinking, like we can sit down and talk, but. I had to explain, like, I explained my alcoholism to my one of my managers yesterday. He was, like, asking questions about it, and I had to explain, like, the difference between me and a, like, I'm an abnormal drinker. You might be a normal drinker. You can have two drinks and walk away. Like, the minute alcohol touches my lips, my allergy kicks in. My brain starts going crazy thinking about how I can get more, and my body will, if there's anything around me, I physically need it, and I will take it. Like, That is the big difference, right? Like, I imagine in my mind, like, you know, there's a genetic component, and I think I have it. Mm -hmm. And it's like I was built with a light switch inside of me. And if I had drank normally, and not got to a certain point, that switch might have never flipped, but I did flip it at some point. Yeah, there's no turning it off now. I totally, totally agree. I love that. I love that analogy. Yeah. It's just, it's stuck up forever. So no matter what I take, I'll go from zero to 102.2 seconds. So I always just try to describe to people, like I was able to go periods of time without drinking before I couldn't anyway, but it's not about how long I can go without a drink. It's what I do once I get my hands on it. Absolutely. So, yeah. So what do you feel today is the hardest part about being a sober bartender then? I would say it's still maintaining my spiritual fitness. It's still um, interacting with other people. I still run into situations where I don't like how I feel and I want to change how I feel. I know I don't want to change it with alcohol, but I definitely want to like, I like future trip to the end of my shift or, you know, I get on my phone to distract myself, like, because I don't like. Like there's just something that'll come up that'll either like rub me the wrong way or people are, you know, rowdy or they're being obnoxious to me. Like if I'm annoyed, I'm the problem because I'm annoyed. Like if they're just doing what, you know, so it's still it's still people. And before I was part of the party. And I think the part about them doing that that I don't like is that that's how I used to be. And now seeing it like I don't like to see people get like that because that was my MO. Like I was loud. I was boisterous. I was obnoxious, knock stuff over. And yeah. So how about you? Um, I, I agree. It's people, but like, I think the biggest issue is prioritization, right? Like my priorities as a bartender have changed from when I was drinking. Right. Like you said, like, I, I love the camaraderie. So like, people staying long, people like, you know, things being a mess, like, you know, focusing on like having a good time with the customer was much more important to me Mm -hmm. versus now where I think like my focus is on making sure the customer's having a good time while I'm taking care of other stuff. Right. And so I do get frustrated with people, especially like other coworkers who like don't have those same priorities. Right. And that, and itself is like my control piece, right? Because I'm not a part of that. Like I have a control problem and like I want to control the way this situation goes and <laughs> I can't control these other people. So like, I feel like I'm picking up the slack. And so I have to constantly work on, you know, letting go of the fact that like other people don't have the same priorities as me. 
closing really quickly isn't necessarily a priority for them because they're having a really good time with those people. But for me, I want them to have a good time and I want to make sure I get my shit done. So I totally, yes. Like I used to just, I had like just these amazing connections with my customers because of the kind Mm -hmm. of places that I worked in. So like that was the most important was like nurturing those relationships and like the dishes can get done later and like the food can get ran later. And you know, when I was drinking and like now my priority is just efficiency. Like yeah. I'm going to cut you off in a conversation to go do something. Whereas before that would never happen. Like people can wait until we're done talking. And now I'm like, hold that thought. I've got it. Yeah. And what's crazy is like, I, I feel the exact same way, but like I still have the same relationships with my customers. Like I'm, I'm the bar lead at my bar. And like, I have customers who look for me every single time, even though like while I'm talking to them, I'm washing dishes or I'm putting things away. Like, because people are a lot more understanding than I gave them credit for. And I mm. wish other people saw it the same way. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it yeah. doesn't come without its own challenges, but I mean, being in recovery, the good thing that we learn is that our challenges are usually internal. Yep. Like we, a lot of times we don't need to change much on the outside or if we do like there's something that we need to address on the back end but really like our troubles are of our own making 100 percent. so 100 yeah when i get that irritated i 100 percent know that it's because i'm trying to force other people to be something they're not right mm-hmm. like i have no control over people places and things so why don't i just focus on what's in my little hula hoop yep and stay out of their way if i want to close faster I can do that while they do that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And I don't recommend becoming a sober bartender if you're newly sober, but if it's what you've already done and if you're already a bartender and you're thinking about, you know, if you're feeling like you're at the end of your rope and you're ready, you know, to, to give sobriety a try, if you're ready to, to seek help, Like it's possible to still maintain your job and, you know, maintain relationships, you know, things change, but mostly it's inside you that's going to change. No, like life is going to life, but you can adjust yourself with help and guidance. Absolutely. I think for me, I know that I had to take a step back from the bar for a couple of months because for me, recovery has to come first, right? So I took a step back from the bar. I worked on like, you know, getting my like 90 days sober. And then I walked back into it, right? Because what I gained in those 90 days was an understanding of how to handle situations that baffle me. Mm. So then I continued working from there. I love it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anything else that you want to throw out there, Sarani, before we... Thank you so much for having me. If there's anyone out there who feels like they're struggling, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, Heroin Anonymous, um, Nar- Narcotics Anonymous, all the anonymouses are located everywhere in the world. If you have questions, just reach out, okay? You're wanted. Yes. And you matter. And you, you really, matter. really matter. So, yes, aa.org, ca.org, ha. I think it's ha.org. And then you can also, um, you can reach me at the Sober Bartender on Facebook. And um, there is help there. And it does help. We're proof. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Proud of you, Brent. Thank you I'm for having me. I'm proud of you, too. All right. Have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. Okay.
if you have questions or if you like the show, please feel free to reach out. Definitely follow, subscribe, rate, and share this podcast. And I just want to thank you for listening. If you or someone you know has a problem with drinking and is interested in getting help, feel free to reach out to me or contact aa.org or meeting guide. There is an app and um, just know that help is out there and we are here to help. Thanks for listening.